listening to the Leadership Woman podcast with me, Jill Savile. And today's guest, I'm really excited to introduce him because he's somebody that I met in 2019 when I spotted him on Twitter and I invited him over to Luxembourg to speak at a leadership forum. He is a private prosecutor, a documentary filmmaker, and I'm going to talk to him today about why in his late 20s he decided to take the Prime Minister of the UK to court for lying. So I won't give you any more introduction. My guest today is Marcus Ball. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Pleasure to, to be involved. We, in fact, met on my birthday. Yes. <laughs> I had a lovely time, actually. Thank you for showing me Luxembourg. I, I'd, I'd never been before. It was a really interesting trip. We had a trip around the European Parliament. With a, Thanks with a, to Mirror. A leading, a leading judge. It was, it was fantastic, actually. A real, a real pleasure to be able to do that. Yeah, and it took you away, I think, from some of the pressure that you were under at the time. Enormous escapism, yes. <laughs> it was great. <laughs> yeah. I'd recently been landed in hundreds of thousands of pounds of court debts, and uh, the chance to escape the UK and come to Luxembourg meet some brilliant people and get some perspective was very valuable. So thank you. So before you did what it is that, that I know you for, um, what was your life like before that? What, what equipped you? Well, for the six years prior to starting my work against lying in politics, I was working on higher education reform. So I ran an experimental education company which existed to combine university students from different courses into teams and encourage them to start their own businesses and the focus was upon education learning different skills in a different environment introducing them to investors clients that kind of thing it was a more practical commercial way of learning uh, for young people so the reason I did that was because I wanted to change the way the university education system works. And I think that that experience of going through that process, trying to change the way big institutions function, set me up quite nicely for my work against stopping lying in politics, because it was essentially the same thing. It was societal change, systems change, trying to change the way things work, despite them having worked that way for hundreds of years. Um, coming up against the same kind of struggles, being um, blocked, being evaded, raising funds, meeting the right people, trying to solve problems, all that kind of thing. They were quite similar in many ways. Mm-hmm. When you were talking about the higher education reform, we have things, uh, we have quite a few incubators now in Luxembourg with the university and with different uh, companies like Vodafone. So it sounds like you were trying to do things. Um, earlier? I think that all universities and all courses should have a major focus upon practical learning, working in teams, working with students who have different skill sets and different education, because that's how we operate in the world, in the real world. We don't, um, if you look at a, a computer science student in a university, for example, the vast majority of the time, they're going to be surrounded by other computer science students. 
and they're going to be working in teams occasionally with other students who have very similar skills to their own. In the real world, that's not really how it works. So computer science students need to know how to communicate with designers, user interface experts, product managers, business people. They need to work as a team working with different skill sets. And I think that university education should reflect that more. And the incubators you mentioned are definitely the right, uh, the right direction to move in. And I think that more universities should make that the central focus of their educational programs. I think they're majorly beneficial. Mm -hmm. Okay, so we talked about skills. Let's move into values then, because I think this uh, fight against lying, this search for truth is very much around your values. So where, where did you get your values from? <laughs> where did I get my values from? Wow. Uh, that's a big question. <laughs> so my driving value, the most important value to me is my ambition and my desire to achieve something huge before I die. And um, I, I've just had this urge since I was about 12 years old to try and achieve something that matters to other people and matters to the world in a big way, because I feel like that would be the best way of achieving what I'm capable of and expressing my, my purpose, if you like. And I think that after a few years of, of feeling this way and up into my early 20s, I, I started to ask myself, where does my ambition come from? Where does this value come from, this desire to change the world and do something important? And I realized that this, this desire started at 12 years old at the same time as my sister passed away. So um, I had a sister growing up and she became very unwell with a genetic illness which there was no um, real cure for. And if there was a cure, it was going to be very difficult to, to actually achieve it. And unfortunately she did pass away. And I think on a psychological, emotional level that must've left an enormous hole and a, um, a lot of pain for a young person growing up and uh, a lot of grief. And I think there must've been some kind of desire subconsciously for me to fill that hole and to heal that wound through the um the therapy of achievement if you like it gives you this, this this drive and this energy and most of all it gives you a realization and appreciation for what life really means and it teaches mm -hmm. you a lesson that everybody thinks they know but they don't really know until they see death happen in front of them to someone they care about and that lesson is that you only have one life and it sounds cliche and silly, but that real realization, that sudden understanding that, yes, you are definitely going to die. If you get that lesson at a young age, so 12 years old when I got it, that's a gift. That's a, you know, that's a smack in the face. That's, look, you are going to die. So what the hell are you going to do with your life? And I like to think of that as being a gift from my sister. So despite her dying and it being terribly upsetting and painful, I try to take the most value from it that I could. And so I, I see that as a gift, as a, a, a realization that you have a time limit. So what are you going to do? Thank you. Thank you for, for sharing that. You're still alive. You've got a life. So what are you going to do with it? Yeah. And also for her, I mean, if I just did nothing with my life and didn't really try to achieve anything, it would be an insult to her because in a way I kind of have to do two people's lives, if that makes right. sense, as a, as a credit to her. Yeah, it, it does. 
I, I said to you earlier, I listened to your talk in the leadership forum this morning, and um, I might be putting you on the spot here. Can you remember the three things that you said? Was it the three examples of lying in politics that motivated me? I think so, yes, it was. So um, a question I'm often asked is, why did you start your work to, uh, to challenge lying in politics? Why did you prosecute a politician to try and prove that lying in politics is illegal? Why would you spend five years of your life and put yourself into enormous debt trying to fight this big problem? And the way I explain it is to give them some context. So three major events happened as I grew up. The first occurred in 2003. We had um, Tony Blair and his government initiate an invasion of Iraq with the US. Everybody accuses Tony Blair of having lied about the Iraq war, but what he specifically lied about was the intelligence he was given, which claimed, he said it claimed that there was no doubt that Saddam possessed weapons of mass destruction and that he was a clear and present danger to the UK and its interests. However, that's not actually what the intelligence said. The intelligence report said that over the last four years, they knew very little about Saddam's WMD technology and capabilities. That's your first example. As a young person growing up, you see the most powerful, important politician in the country lying to the whole world about the reasons for starting a war. And that's resulted in hundreds of thousands of people dying. Example number two, I think this was 2010. I was a university student studying history. And I coincidentally, I was learning about politicians and wars being started based upon lies in the past. And um, it was my first time to vote. Nick Clegg, David Cameron, uh, Gordon Brown, etc. They were all in the running. And Nick Clegg at the time was this very young, charismatic, likable politician. And lots and lots of students like me flocked to him. And he became this kind of cult figure during that election. And he was very popular and famous for two big things he said. The first thing was that he said that he would vote against any rise in tuition fees under any circumstances. And the second thing he's famous for is um, his campaigning video, which said that if we vote for him, he will fight to bring an end to broken promises. No more broken promises in politics, Nick Clegg said. And what's the first thing he did when he became the deputy prime minister? First thing he did was he broke his biggest promise and he voted to not only rise um, to raise tuition fees, I think he raised it by three times, I think, was it 300% or something? And uh, that was just a big slap in the face to, to everybody. But then he reveals later on after the election that he was aware that he could not do that. So the actual promise itself was the lie, which is what some people don't quite understand. Um, and I, I felt it very keenly because I voted for the Lib Dems based upon what he had said. And I felt like I had been duped and then the third example was in 2016, when we had politicians campaigning in the Brexit referendum, and in particular, the big red bus, which is now very famous, and the claim that the UK sends £350 million a week to the EU. And from my perspective, this was just too far. It was too much. So you've got three examples. You've got a politician lying to all of us in, our, in order to start a war that kills hundreds of thousands of people. You've got a politician telling us that he will fight against broken promises and um, he will vote against a rise in tuition fees under any circumstances. And then you've got uh, people like Boris Johnson and Michael Gove 
making claims about billions of pounds of public spending, which are just completely deceitful. Mm. So money, lives and votes. And I was suddenly of an age where I felt I could actually do something about it. I was 26. And if you look at the, um, the current laws that politicians themselves have made, there are, there's law after law after law preventing self-employed people from lying to the government about their income taxes and their assets. There are laws against companies and advertisers lying to the public about their services and products. Yet the people who make these laws do not have laws preventing themselves from lying to us. Yeah, that's why I started this work. They're the three examples that I think I mentioned them before. Is that the same that was mentioned? It's the same three, yeah. Right. So, <laughs> so you weren't lying. Yeah. <laughs> so um, there, there is something that stipulates that MPs shouldn't lie in the House. And I'm trying to think what it is. There are, there are two authorities. There's the Code of Conduct for Members of Parliament, which has a list of duties and responsibilities that MPs are meant to abide by. And that actually formed a part of our prosecution case. Um, and then there's, certain, there's, there's something called Erskine May, which is a, a, a list of parliamentary traditions and procedures that have been built up over the last few hundred years. And they seek uh, to provide a guide to MPs in terms of how they should act in the chamber. So um, if, uh, if a minister or an MP lies to the House of Commons during a debate, they um, should immediately come back to the House and correct their mistake. That is what is traditionally seen as being what should occur. But on the other side, there is a rule that MPs cannot be accused of lying in the House because it's seen as yeah. being an unparliamentary remark. So you were 26. These three things happened and you decided uh, enough was enough. So how did you, how, did, how on earth did you begin? What did you do? Well, the first thing I did was I got very upset. <laughs> uh, I wasn't politically engaged prior to the referendum result. I wasn't campaigning or anything like that. And I just assumed that there would be a vote and we'd remain in the EU and it would be very interesting. And the leave vote was very shocking. So I spent two days really examining what were the biggest claims used and how this had occurred. And the big red bus just kept coming up over and over again. And it was just completely wrong. And um, caught up in the moment, I think about a week later, I had filmed a video for crowdfunding and I simply told everybody in this video what it was that I wanted to achieve. I didn't know exactly what I was doing. I just believed and I knew that there, there must be a legal solution to this because what's occurred is so morally incorrect that they can't not be. And I had a lot of faith in the law that there must be a solution to this. And so I started to crowdfund. And um, in the first day, I was too nervous to put it online. <laughs> I think I was the only person who funded myself in that first 24 hours. <laughs> but eventually, I, I built up the courage to put it online. And it just went crazy. Um, the video that I used in terms of if you want to talk about leadership for the, for the podcast, I expressed what I believed. And I used... The, uh, the Simon Sinek golden circle concept where you explain what you believe and um, the why, how, what structure. So I believe that lying in politics damages our country and it's terrible. What I want to do and how I want to do it, I want to raise money and I want to hire a legal team and I want to run a private prosecution. And 
I made it clear that I am not a lawyer <laughs> and I'm, I'm new to this and we, we might fail, but we have a responsibility to try regardless because the whole world cannot see the UK make such a momentous decision based upon lies without anyone doing anything about it. That would be doubly humiliating that no one would stand up against it. So I just threw myself at it. And over the next four weeks, I had a very ambitious target of £100,000. And if we didn't hit that target, we wouldn't get anything because that's the way the crowdfunding system works on that first crowdfund. But the response was insane. We had national press and we hit £145,000 in four weeks from, I think, about 5,000 people. So we did really well. Um, and that, that's how it began, really. It was emotions driven. It was values driven. It was just having enough of how things were and wanting to change it. Thank you for mentioning Simon Sinek. Of course, if anybody's not read Start With Why, then absolutely you need to and watch the TED Talk. I remember being part of the crowdfund. I obviously watched you and what you were saying captured my anger, my own anger and distress at what was happening. So when we think about when we think about timing, you very definitely caught the mood. And as mm. you said, the crowdfund was particularly successful. So you knew what you were going to do. You set about funding it. What else did you need? Well, the process of ensuring the crowdfunding page was as credible and thorough as possible was a whole lesson in itself. It involved a lot of, um, of writing and graphic design and that kind of thing to make sure that the landing page was successful. However, um, when you say there that I knew what I wanted to do, I would just specify that I knew what I wanted to achieve and mm -hmm. I had a hope of what I wanted to do specifically. And I spoke to lawyers and I got a few lawyers on, on side and one lawyer in particular, Anthony Iskander, um, I still work with him to this day. He's been with me for five years now. And he's the person who actually originally theorized the concept of prosecuting based upon the offense of misconduct in public office. Now, his original theory was to prosecute the campaign organization itself, Vote Leave or Stronger In, whichever side he wanted to go for. But he... Um, the actual prosecution we did in the end was to use the same offence in a different way. So having Anthony on board as a barrister from the beginning helped me enormously. And he's been very helpful throughout the whole process. And if he hadn't written his original theory for how to prosecute in this manner, it's quite possible that we never would have prosecuted at all. Um, because I, I hadn't heard of misconduct in public office until Anthony wrote his article. So he was very important to the whole mm -hmm. process. So to answer your question, what else we needed was, was lawyers and we needed expertise. I, I knew how to raise the money. So I raised the money. I knew how to capture the timing, if you, if, if, as you say, and capture the, the public energy and emotion and bring everyone together. So I was providing leadership from that point of view. And my original plan was actually, as I remember, was um, initially I was never going to do any of the legal stuff. I was going to do some of the basics and I was going to be responsible for raising money and speaking to the press and, and handling the recruitment and selection of lawyers but my original understanding was that the lawyers, the top, the top lawyers in London, in the capital, they would be the people leading the way on this and doing it. But that is not what happened at all. Um, quite simply, £145,000 sounds like a lot of money, and it is. But in order to achieve what we needed to, 
it took years of research, months and months and months of arguing, gathering evidence. It, the, the job was enormous and it would have cost hundreds and hundreds of thousands of pounds, potentially millions in order to pay a team to get that done. Um, so instead, I just did 95% of the research, evidence gathering and case building myself. And then when I had like, built up my work, I presented it to some of the best lawyers in the city and we argued about it and they told me what was good and what wasn't. And they provided a kind of filter system. And that in the end was far more cost-effective. Mm. So yeah, it, it, the original plan was to let the lawyers get on with it, but that's not how it happened. But that's not what happened. We're going to take a break here. Uh, I didn't want to cut anything short from what you were going to say, Marcus. And uh, in part two, we're going to hear what happened to the court case, uh, what kept you going through the trials and tribulations, and what you're going to do in the future. So thank you for now. <laughs>